0: We have been duped by feminism, sexual liberation, and antidepressants. We have been told that we are powerful and free now as women, but we feel tired, wired, and bitter. We're mostly eating right, exercising, and meditating, wrangling to-do lists, and arranging playdates, and yet there's a haunting hollowness beneath the huge complaints What if I told you that there is a huge storehouse, a reservoir of energy inside of you that has not been tapped, that you could feel light and pulsing, excited and alive in ways that a wellness lifestyle cannot deliver, that you could trust yourself, that the world could feel safe and that unexpected and expected delights could start to illuminate your path. No coach, therapist, doctor, or guru required. Just you learning to get real, present, and attentive with you. I feel like I'm here to match make your inner parts for the greatest love affair ever written. I want to help you learn first where you're buying eggs from the hardware store, which is the source of all pain. I want to help you master entering through the upset, which is the only spiritual practice you'll ever need and to get real comfortable putting on your villain crown, which is, in my opinion, the key to true power. And then you'll attune to your inner yes, so you can live the life defined by the specific pleasure of who you are. I am so excited to announce my latest book called The Reclaimed Woman, which is available for pre-order now, So if you head to the link in show notes, you can learn more about bonuses, events, and companion offerings. And I cannot wait to see your gorgeous face on the path. I'm Dr. Kelly Brogan. You may know me as a New York Times bestselling author of a book with an exploding pill on the cover, renegade psychiatrist, pole dancer, or honorary member of the Disinformation Dozen. What can I say, I'm a born provocateur. I've spent most of my recent life exposing deceptions, connecting dots and discovering the secret places my inner victim is still waiting to be liberated. And now I feel called to help you reclaim all of your parts, your health, your sexuality, your power and your expression so that you can finally truly own yourself. I want to ignite in you that inner knowing and the pulsing vitality that lives beneath your disempowerment, disconnection, and resentment so that you can audaciously, courageously, and playfully alchemize your struggle into the specific pleasure of who you are. This is Reclamation Radio, a Soulfire production. Hi, and welcome to Reclamation Radio. I am Dr. Kelly Brogan, and I'm here with my girlfriend and colleague, Dr. Maya Shetreat. And if you don't know her from her previous work, The Dirt Cure, then you may know her as an herbalist or as, I will say, an enlightened neurologist. And I know her in almost none of those capacities and really as somebody that I have connected to on a soul level and met in like the darkest spaces of my life and found her hand there. You know, that the way that we intertwine as women in our spirals is so fascinating to me. And that's really when we came together, right? Was like in the charnel ground of both of our lives back up in New York. So I am super, super excited to be in convo with you. There's so many things that we could talk about, but what I really want to focus on today is your new masterpiece entitled the Master plan experience that I had the pleasure of finishing recently, and I want to unpack why it is you know that you are focused on really speaking your truth about what is now so in the zeitgeist. and I want to talk about this, that there are parts of me that are are a bit suspicious. you know about what might be going on, that everybody's talking about planet all of a sudden. so, I welcome you here, woman, and I'm excited to to chat about this.
1: Well, I'm, as always, so happy to be here and in conversation with you. Awesome. So
0: I want to start out by reading a quote. I'm a quote kind of gal. Okay, so this is a quote from page 128, and you write, We remain in an ongoing sacred exchange with plants through the entire cycle of life and death. They feed us with their bodies when we take their lives. And when we die, we in turn feed them with our bodies, which eventually become part of the soil that nourishes them. We've evolved together with plants. We are kin. And this is just so beautifully written, this book. And I know you as a farmer, right? As a gardener, master gardener. And I know that when we were just even speaking before I started recording about like the plants in your home that require your care and attention on a very intense level. Like if you're going to travel or something as much as your animals. And I know that when we're talking about plants, we could just focus on, you know, so-called entheogens or psychedelic ceremonial plants. I know the story of your relationship to plants begins well before your Intimacy with these more fantastical varietals. So, I'd love to just sort of get your reflections on looking over your life. Like, has it been the case that you have always had this relationship intact? I know for so many of us, it's not the case. You know, like the most intimate we'll get with a plant is like eating a salad, right? And I know that there's so much more intimacy available, consciousness, intentionality, and Relational exploration that's available. So, I want to hear a bit about your journey when it comes to plants in general.
1: Well, I will actually start by answering part of your question about people's intimacy in general with plants, because, you know, one of the so to define master plants, right? Because I called my book The Master Plant Experience, and people assume that means psychedelic master plants. But in fact, master plants are an indigenous term for flora, fauna, fungi that alter our consciousness and human behavior, right? So we assume that means psychedelics, but in fact, it is not only psychedelics. It can be coffee, the coffee plant. It could be the cacao plant, you know, or any number of like potent tea, right? Things that are very much part of people's daily rituals and what most of us would go quite a bit out of our way, right? To get our daily coffee or our chocolate or whatever it is. So while all psychedelics are considered masters, many other kinds of plants that are potent are under that same umbrella of master plants. And I say this because we're incredibly intimate. We're already very much in relationship, every single one of us, with these master teachers, right? They're called master plants because they are considered to be transmitters of ancient wisdom that help guide us in how to be human and navigate this, you know, crazy place we call (laughs) earth school. But my own story, I think, you know, I grew up a little only child in the 1970s. And so I had no cell phone. My parents were a little, you know, I won't say checked out, but it was basically the opposite of boomer parents and the opposite of millennial parents. Because nobody knew where we were. We all just did our own thing. And, you know, like we were supposed to get home when the streetlights came on. It's 10 PM. Do you know where your children are? Right. And that was a real thing in the 1970s. It was not actually that strange to hear that commercial. So I think I used to go, I was an only child and so I had to keep myself busy. One of the ways I did that was reading tons and tons of books, although I now realize that was probably also a way I like checked out of my life as much as I could. So, you know, maybe my drug of choice in a way. Um, and obviously I had friends, but like friends had family time that, you know, and they had siblings to play with and things like that, which I did not. So another thing I did was I would hang out by this creek in my neighborhood, which I now realized was really like probably just runoff, you know, <laughs> and, <laughs> Definitely had like little gasoline, you know, kind of rainbows in it and things. But I used to just sit and be with like the nature there. I would play in the water. I would make little altars, although I wouldn't have called that, you know, an altar at that time. But I would just take bits of earth. I'd be with the plants. And that was really one of my happy places, you know, that I would just go on my bike and be there for hours and hours. And also, I just remember, right, growing up in my suburban neighborhood outside of Washington, D.C., Seeing lots that were clear cut for houses and feeling the grief of the trees missing their kin in those lots. And I would cry sometimes. And my mother would ask me why I was crying. And I would have to make up stories because I had no way to explain to her what I was feeling, or perhaps I didn't feel safe explaining it to her. So I would say things like, you know, I had a parakeet. I'm like, I was like, I'm afraid there'll be a fire and my bird will die in the fire. Right. Like that was not what I was like tearing up and crying about. It was hearing these trees. So I think there were a lot of ways, you know, that I became intimate with plants and I'm really not, I wouldn't even say I'm a master gardener. I just, it's just my way of being with plants. My plants die sometimes, you know, I mean, I am not, I am not like the maestro of plants, but I'm always trying, part of why I grow plants is to tend them and be in service to them in order to learn from them.
0: First of all, I've seen your garden and I will assign the master <laughs> label to you. <laughs> that shit is impressive. And it's all relative, right? Like in my my little gardening stint, I remember like the fennel bulb that grew after like six months, I felt like I should frame it. <laughs> so you're talking about the like objectification and commodification of the natural world and this very appropriate grief, you know, that you felt even as a little, a little nugget. And I know that you've written, you know, how you observe this phenomenon, this relational phenomenon leads to a fear of our own inner wildness. And I'd love for you to speak to like what you've observed in your embodiment journey and your journey as a woman and how it is that you see the relationship between you know the clear cutting of that lot or so many ways that we relate to the environment as an an object
1: well i think it all begins really with programming and that starts at a very young age you know maybe many listeners know that between the ages of zero and seven we get a huge amount of our programming it begins very, very early with our families, because we have to learn what the rules of our family are and how to be in our family, how to be in our community, how to be in our society. And a lot of that just becomes really unconscious. And we operate from it mostly, you know, more than we operate from our conscious mind, we're operating from that programming. And the programming continues in education. And that education programming is all about obedience, It's really primarily about obedience. And I always kind of point people to this quote by John D. Rockefeller, who we could really go on a tangent about. But, you know, he was, in a sense, the father of public education in the sense that he was the funder of public education, the beginning of public education. And he basically said, I want a nation of workers, not thinkers. And I think that just beautifully encapsulates the obedience narrative that we're fed. And all of this is very important because most of us are very educated, right? Certainly through high school, if not college, if not grad school or med school or so on. And there are all these accolades that we can earn by doing that. But there is like a straitjacket that we are then in this programming and this obedience that we have to uphold. So obedience is the opposite in a sense of wildness, in the opposite of finding your own agency and your own intuition and your own inner wisdom and your own meaning making. And when we value obedience over all of those other things, in order to kind of hold on to those accolades, in order to experience acceptance and to be seen as, you know, all of the achievements that we have worked hard for, actually, and have earned... It suppresses these other parts of ourselves, this wildness. So, in order to reclaim all of these, or claim sometimes for the very first time, all of these jewels that are within us, that really are everything that can lead to new ways of being and authentic ways of being, we have to be willing to become disobedient and wild. And I think. It's reflected in a sense in how we treat the natural world, which is we want everything to be manicured. We want everything to be controlled. I live in a neighborhood where I don't rake my leaves in the fall. I'm sure there are many people here who have neighbors they hate (laughs) who don't rake their leaves. I also leave a part of my lawn very wild and lots of like kind of vines and bushes and things where animals live. And, you know, my neighbors have completely, they have no leaves. They have totally manicured lawns. That's sort of this, for me, it's a sign of the honoring of the wildness of nature and where that can take us, both within ourselves and around ourselves. The assertion that you make
0: in the book also is that we have past, present, and future selves, right? You talked about this programming. I think you and I would agree that part of the... Embodiment and awakening process is the integration of all of these, right? so it's not like forsaking one for for the next and it's not being preoccupied with you know what's ahead or what's behind, or really potentially even valuing the present more than the holistic tapestry of who it is that we are and our story so if one of the things that master plan experiences can confer is a sense of like belonging and understanding that we have a role in this greater tapestry that involves these dimensions of ourselves, that involves our dynamic relationship with the natural world, then there is an opportunity to like come into aliveness. And I loved, how you, I think that's vivification experience. Like that is what we're here for, right? That reclamation of our eros, our vital force, our Shakti, whatever you want to call it, reconnection opening the channel. So I'd love for you to speak a bit about how it is that you see the interaction with an engagement. We'll talk about ceremony and ritual, but just how it is that you see these plants to have been delivered to us for this express purpose of like self-actualization. Do you think that's like actually what the nature of the relationship is? And do you think it's always been that way or it's like particularly now in this zeitgeist that this relationship is so needed?
1: Hmm. Well, so I think that the plants have not been delivered to us, but the plants have come to us themselves to offer themselves in this moment in time. And I do think very much actually that we're all really one thing. We're all one being and that we're each utterly unique expressions of that one being. And our job, our biggest job, is to fully express that uniqueness, which means, you know, not fitting into any kind of cookie cutter sort of programming. What's interesting about self-actualization is, and in the book I explore this, so I talk a little bit about, you know, the very well-known Maslow, hierarchy of needs. And Maslow, who, you know, sort of has been having a moment for some time now, it turns out really studied with the Blackfoot Nation for a summer. And that really changed his ideas about self actualization, which he kind of put at the top of the pyramid, this hierarchy, which is funny because that's such a kind of different way of thinking than most indigenous people would necessarily have said. And in his idea about self-actualization, you must be disobedient. (laughs) You must be disobedient, not like just for the sake of disobedience, but in order to be self-actualized, you have to break certain rules in alignment with how you can be most authentically present. Now, on the other side, the Blackfoot people would say, we're born self-actualized and everything we're doing is just practice in self-actualization. So all of this to say, why do I think that master plants are emerging into the zeitgeist at this time? And in this way, I think there's more than one thing going on. But one of the reasons is for us to recognize, right, we're so polarized right now. We're really, as a society, I mean, not maybe, not me, not you, maybe not many of the listeners, but many people are so quick to go to that us versus them mentality. Even the people who think they are the most, you know, into non-duality and non-binary and non, it's like the more, it almost seems like the more you say that, the more (laughs) polarized you can be, right? So all of this to say, I think these plants are there to help us move from us versus them to me and we. Because of the fact that we are all connected, we are all one being. We are surrounded by beings and not things. And we are surrounded by family, by our own family in every living and what we would call non living being around us. So, you know, I think it's interesting that in this moment, very recently, the Surgeon General of the United States declared an epidemic of loneliness. And we can talk about how, you know, master plants and psychedelics can play a role there. But this epidemic of loneliness is very much because of this us versus them way of living that we've been more and more and more leaning into, I mean, for decades and decades.
0: I love that at one point you talk about how, you know, obviously this oneness, this non-duality, this concept of like merger with the divine the unified field has gotten some traction in the new age but you talk about how one of the potential points of expansion conferred by these experiences with these plants is to hold paradox right and you sort of touched on that and what it is to actually find the aliveness that lives in the space of that tension you know to find the complementarity between the seeming Irreconcilable dimensions and to find wholeness through that, right? Like yin yang rather than through just like the monochrome. And I wonder if maybe this is a good time to sort of back up and just name so that people can orient around what the hell we're going to be talking about for the rest of the discussion. Name like what you consider to be the master plants. Like, I don't know if that's something that's like up to debate or like description. And I'm sure there's, you know, all sorts of discussions happening and whether there are certain plants or brews, if you will, that you think have like a special role in you know, what's happening collectively now, or like would serve a certain kind of person. And this is obviously not prescriptive, but like I'm interested in the fabric, you know, that we're we're seeing having been woven and that, you know, there's a particular role, let's say that ayahuasca is playing for the collective or San Pedro is playing for the collective and in anchoring these energies, you know, which you talk about as being, and I want to get more into this, like far more than just the chemical distillations and reductions that a lot of the research would have you imagine. The research and even just sort of the, again, commodification of these plants, like, you know, even in the microdosing world, right? Like there's just this idea of like the grams and the, the chemical and whatever. So what are you talking about when it comes to master plants? And maybe if you could just share like a bit about each one, and the role that you see the ritualistic and ceremonial engagement of these plants like playing for us right now?
1: Well, I can talk a little bit about some of them. And I do, you know, have a a long chapter in the book where I go through a good number and it would definitely not be comprehensive, but some of the biggest players. And I definitely don't think I am... Well, I don't think anyone can say what each one is best for in the sense that these are incredibly mystical, powerful beings, and they are so outside of anything I found. The more I know about them, the more I would not try to peg them or say a specific goal. However, with that said, so that people know who we're talking about here, I'll give some examples of the most, I think, popular and maybe quote unquote, accessible at the moment, the ones that are more in the zeitgeist in this moment. And there are many more. And there are some that are more poisonous, right? Like not something to just like, you know, do in your backyard kind of thing. Like, whereas some are far less risky, but the most, I think, popular right now. So always, you know, magic mushrooms, right? The psilocybe mushrooms. I think everybody knows about those. The ayahuasca vine slash brew, and we can get into the difference if you want. San Pedro cactus, peyote, iboga, brugmansia, datura. Tobacco is actually considered to be probably the most powerful of the master plants. People are always very shocked when I bring up tobacco if they're not in the world of master plants. Tobacco is probably considered worldwide And I certainly do not speak for Indigenous people in any way. Indigenous people are an incredibly diverse group with incredibly diverse opinions. So when I share any Indigenous wisdom that I've learned, it's from my teachers who are also a diverse group of people and also commonalities. But around the world, tobacco is considered universally the most sacred plant above and beyond all these other plants. So um, those are some examples, but there are... Many, many more, you know, the amanita mushroom, salvia, on and on. But this is probably a good number. And some are, you know, considered much more playful, much more gentle. Some are considered much stronger. Rigmancia, for example, is like, you know, something that could put someone in a coma for two weeks. Like somebody will have like a horrible accident, you know, in a community there where they'll be put into a coma literally. For a long time, and have visions of going to like conventional, as we would call it, medical institutions, having doctors and nurses doing surgery on them, so on and so forth, and actually come out being healed, right? Like, there are incredible stories of this, but nobody would recommend touching that plant without being incredibly trained and, you know, even the most trained people are very careful and have people watching over them when they drink that. So, you know, these are, are some of the many master plants that are psychedelic, meaning that they they give us visions and we can talk about what visions may be, what they may mean, but they offer us visions. Whereas some of the others, like the coca plant, the opium poppy, right, coffee, cacao, and many others They alter us, but differently, right? Not typically with visions.
0: So y'all know that I am super discerning when it comes to what I share with you. And I've had brands asking to work with me for years and I keep saying no because they're not aligned. And for me, there's just so much more to it than selling a product, but a company and brand and woman I can get behind and really love is Lotus Way. I am dear friends with their founder, Katie, and I have been personally using their whole line of flower elixirs for years. I'm obsessed to the point where my bathroom counter looks like their storefront. Flower remedies, whether they're anointed, taken orally, or sprayed in delicious mists, are incredibly powerful information for your system that is safe and gentle for everyone, even pregnant mamas and little ones. So I am excited to share Lotus Way with you. And I know that whichever essence you're attracted to and choose for yourself will support you in the ways that you need most. So head to lotusway.com and use the code KELLY15 for 15% off. The link is in the show notes. So a lot of what you foreground, the like nearly encyclopedic exploration of so many aspects of these plants that you just referenced in the book is, first of all, this idea that these plants are regarded as, you know, what some of us in the secular world would describe as like an anthropomorphized, you know, sort of, they have like these personas almost, but you know, in more native environments that they are spirits themselves and they have these spiritual signatures, right? So whether it's, you know, the, you know, grandmother, grandfather, the kids, you know, whatever it is, the ninos, and that is part of how they originated was that these spirits spoke to shamans. And of course you, you touch on something that, you know, is near and dear to my heart, which is how. The recognition of, you know, shamanic gifts and powers by the Western cult of psychiatry is, you know, part of this grand inversion, right? That these are like primitive, maybe even crazy people. And meanwhile, they are connected to and channeling this source information that could never have, quote unquote, scientifically been arrived at, you know? So, like, you think about the combination of, you know, vine and plant in an ayahuasca brew of the oh, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of plant options. You know, what was it, trial and error? You know, itself is evidence of the communication that happens between the plant world and, you know, the human psyche. And so I wonder if you could speak a little bit about this concept of plant spirits and shamans who are, you know, ordained around those communications. And how it could possibly be that these plants were identified as having these very particular properties, right? Was it just sort of like somebody rolled up a tobacco leaf one day, or did they get a vision in a dream? Or was it some kind of lore that was handed down from who knows when and where, and really to defy the reductionistic, probabilistic, materialistic concept that these are chemicals that you expose yourself to, that we've learned about, because people who are around those chemicals have some experience with them. Right? Like that's just like one narrative that is almost like it's just ridiculous, right? So we we're almost forced to in our Western psychology encounter that which is beyond the framework that we are habituated to.
1: Well, So much to unpack there. The first thing I'd say is, you know, I always take issue a little bit at this point with the concept of anthropomorphizing because. Right. That goes back to everything is alive. Everything is a being. Everything has a voice. Everything has wisdom. So to me, plants are beings. I am a being. There's not really right. Anthropomorphizing. And, you know, I'm not getting on you about it, but I'm kind of indicting our societal way of putting humans at the top of some pyramid and kind of comparing everything else to personhood when we're all persons, everything's people. And right. So, you know, even when people talk about like getting information or, you know, tools from the inputs from the environment around us, to me, it's we're in conversation with beings. We're in conversation with beings all the time. So that sort of will take me into how we think about these master plants who, in fact, right. I mean, Just to back up, I think most people may not realize that 70 to 80% of pharmaceuticals that we regularly use in Western medicine right now, including in surgeries and anesthesias and so on, were derived by bioprospectors and anthropologists who were visiting and kind of inserting themselves and insinuating themselves into indigenous communities to learn Of the hundreds of thousands of plants that, by the way, you know, and this is for anyone who has not been to the Amazon or been to the jungle, nobody looks that impressive in the midst of hundreds of thousands of different varieties of plants. Like the ayahuasca vine is really impressive if you would see the ayahuasca vine, an old ayahuasca vine all by herself, but you will not necessarily recognize that vine as being so very different from other big green bushy vines, right? And so that's number one, right? Is almost all pharmaceuticals that we have are synthesized, you know, and replicated and so on from indigenous knowledge of plants that those bioprospectors would still be trying to figure out a plant and what it did, you know, to this day, like we would not have a pharmaceutical system as we do. So then we'd have to have to ask ourselves, well, how do they know, right? How do they know? Because for example, as you say, the ayahuasca vine is not alone, this psychedelic. It's not like someone just like popped it into their mouth and said, hey, wow, like I'm seeing all these visions. The ayahuasca vine, and it is by the way, the vine herself, not the leaves or any other part, but in fact, and this vine actually does well being cut back a little bit, you know? So that- actually has to be brewed for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours hours until it is like a paste. And then even alone by itself would not be psychedelic, would not offer visions, but in fact has to be then mixed with a plant that contains DMT. And the plant that contains DMT, so many plants, we ourselves make DMT, you know, which is a psychedelic molecule. That's a whole interesting conversation that we we make it. Animals make it in our nervous systems. And in fact, many plants, right? So nature is awash in DMT, but not every single plant. So there are certain plants. And in South America, it's often the chacruna plant mixed then with this brew and cooked then longer for this to be a psychedelic brew that we call ayahuasca and you know DMT is very quickly broken down in our body in our digestive tract without by enzymes that we have so what ayahuasca does is actually blocks a certain enzyme but let us remember you know there were no PCRs there were no extracting materials in the jungle when indigenous people were learning about it so of course there is a question right and there are many examples not just the ayahuasca brew and i give other examples in my book but you know how would they know how would they know without knowing the molecules and the enzymes and what blocks what and how long to prepare it and all these things certainly not trial and error right and but when we would ask you know anyone asks how do you know they say the plants told us now the bioprospectors the anthropologists obviously you know all of these people would automatically say that's crazy that's a lie these people don't know anything they're primitive etc you know this is just some kind of crazy idea. They were obviously very happy to take the knowledge back though <laughs> and utilize that and integrate that and commoditize that, but you know, it's clear that there were transmissions happening, right? Everything else was true, but we didn't like that little part where they said we learn from the plants. Now, to get to your point, and I don't want to go on for too long about this, but I think this is very relevant actually to you and your professional background and something that you're very passionate about. And written about is this idea too that people who have, you know, what we call mental illness or neurodivergence. And obviously, I'm also very passionate about this as a neurologist. And especially because I worked for a very long time as a pediatric neurologist, I ended up becoming a protector of neurodivergence. And we could even take apart the whole idea of neurodivergence, but people with bipolar disorder, people with schizophrenia. People with sensory integration disorder, autism, ADHD, and on and on—we could go on. But particularly, people with psychosis. In other societies, and in many indigenous societies, the first what we would call psychotic break was considered to be an initiation, an initiation, initiation. an invitation, right? And they would enter into training. And we can talk also about you know what psychedelics do and why they open. Our gates of perception are sensory gating, which we can measure in neurological, you know, clinical ways, but why having open sensory gating is very important. And psychedelics can offer that. Gifted people, by the way, also have very wide sensory gating or can, you know, and part of our obedience training is to tamp down on those windows of perception. And, you know, so we pathologize everything that doesn't kind of fall into this very narrow way of seeing the world and experiencing the world. But these people who had neurodivergence or, you know, psychiatric divergence, let's say mental divergence, were considered gifted. Now, it did not mean they were going to have easy lives. It did not. People weren't like able to, you know, they couldn't say, oh, I want the psychotic break. Right. I mean, it was a hard life. It is a hard life or it can be. But imagine what would happen if we looked at people who had these neurodivergent or mentally divergent ways of being. And we said, oh, you are ready for your training now. And offered them the opportunity to then become these people who were able to bridge worlds. Like, right, we call shamans, which is actually, you know, not probably a great word, because it is actually a very colonized anthropological word. But at the same time, it's a word we kind of all have a common understanding of. So I would say, you know, Thinking about these people who have that capacity to see more than what most people have the capacity or the training to be able to access, those are the people who are the most called oftentimes to receive the wisdom of these plants.
0: Couldn't agree more. And I think these reframes are part of the reclamation, right? Because the inversion is often the exact antithetical understanding of the truth. I mean, it's not like a little off, it's like the actual opposite. You know, I think of that Krishnamurti quote, like it's no sign of health to be well adapted to a profoundly sick society. And then we call the people sick who are not adapted, you know, to what's misaligned. You talk about the visionary plants and I'm curious about what you think, because you alluded to this earlier, like visions actually are, right, because we can get into and there's so much, you know, Johns Hopkins research about this now that when we get into the chemically reductionistic realm, we can theoretically attempt to explain some of the phenomena that accompany but even that, you know, these days. With my hardcore you know like circle of skeptics, like I believe pretty much like nothing about what we are learning when it comes to biology or have learned, and so much of it is assumptions, and so much of it is hand waving. But let's say you know we could explain you know what a vision is, you know, from another perspective, is it the spirit of the plant speaking, showing, demonstrating, revealing? is it like your own higher self, your own psyche? that is chaperoned, you know, in ways like by the spirit of the plant to show you what it is that you need to see. Is it just like coming from the ethers that now you get to tap into because of that sensory gating phenomenon? Like what have you come to really understand these these visions when it comes to these more psychedelic plants to represent?
1: Well, so I think we can start with the idea that and this was an interesting experience for me as a medically trained person, that we don't really totally understand vision in medicine, in science. You know, we're taught a whole sequence of events and rods and cones and light and retina and all these different things, you know. But in fact, when I started researching visions, I fell into a rabbit hole on vision, period. And so we don't understand why we see really this amalgam of light as an image, right? Like we're not, you know, we think, oh yes, there's an apple right here and we see an apple. It is not that way at all. So, you know, I'll let people dive into that if they want to a little more in my book. But in fact, we don't really understand vision. So of course, when there is not something kind of physically agreed upon in front of us, like how could we possibly have very reasonable understanding of something not physically in front of us, you know? So visions are an interesting concept. We don't understand very much about visions at all on the one hand. And one of the things that I explore as well as all of the great scientists who have received their biggest life's work through visions, psychedelic or otherwise, from the periodic table to knowing how to create PCR all came through visions right and i mean even kind of these intuitions these hits like einstein and his theory of relativity now right or wrong <laughs> as any of these may be you know they certainly influence society in a massive massive way so okay so then the idea sort of comes about visions and understanding too the context of you know i consider indigenous science to be a valid concept, a thing and advanced. And, you know, even though it's not in Western words and technicalities and so on, but to understand how much of our entire society is based on indigenous science that was received through visions, that gave me a real interest in understanding how to understand visions differently. Because for us, visions were called hallucinations, really, right? I mean, we call it what happens during a psychedelic journey, you know, in the Western world, we call them hallucinations. And and hallucinations are psychosis, or they're wrong, or they're delusions, or they're not real, right? I mean, they are the opposite of anything we should be paying attention to, their pathology. Whereas on the other side, you know, in a more indigenous environment, it would be considered deeper truth. You get a vision, right? That's like a visitation. That's an understanding of something more truthful than the rest of us can see. So I just want to kind of you know, to your point of flipping things on their head, which is one of my favorite things to do. But, you know, and then this will take me, I think, to what we were just talking about in terms of sensory gating, right? And all of the different groups who are actually in certain societies considered to be more gifted. So sensory gating is really just our windows of perception that we all have in our you know, on a cellular level, let's say, and maybe in a more esoteric way as well, of how well we see reality. And we talked about that obedience training that really tamps down our sensory gating because, you know, children, babies, infants have wide open sensory gating. But the more you're educated, the more you're getting that programming that we talked about, right, from zero to seven and beyond the more you tamp down further and further and further are sensory gating. And those are really our literal gates of perception. Like I can send someone for evoked potentials, you know, in a hospital setting and learn about their sensory gating. If they have MS or if they have schizophrenia or they have other things, we use this actually to contribute to a diagnosis, let's say in mainstream medicine. Now, if somebody has more wide open sensory gating, right, just because you're tuning down the volume doesn't actually mean that there's not like this gorgeous music playing, right? Like it just means you're not hearing it as well as other people or you're hearing it much more quietly. So that is, I think, one of the key points around sensory gating. And I think, you know, if we think about, let's say a musician, right? Like, you know, I as let's say someone who sang opera will be much more attuned to flat notes and sharp notes as compared to someone who may not have ever sung and just likes listening to music. And someone who has perfect pitch, which I do not, might even more have right attuned sensory gating, auditory sensory gating, or think about how we can modulate it. Like if you hear your voice in a crowded, you hear your, sorry, your name in a crowded room, right? Suddenly you're gonna open your sensory gating, right? Your auditory sensory gating to be like, ooh, what is that person saying about me? Right. So just so people have an idea of what sensory gating is and what it looks like, the more we open that sensory gating, the more we perceive not of a world that's not true but probably a world that's more true, right? And so this is not, to me, our higher self, you know, because think about this, we're all one being. <laughs> we're all expressions of one being. So really it's tapping into that knowing. And certainly, yes, what we uniquely must know in order to fully creatively express the uniqueness of who we are as a being, as an expression of the one being. That is what I think these visions confer.
0: That's beautiful.
1: And I know that in the context
0: of these reframes, there's another one that I found super helpful to explore in your writing and through your writing, which is the role of myth, you know, socio culturally, and this idea that a myth is just a false story. <laughs> like it's a It's fake news and how the role of myth and often associated ceremony and settings for the relaying and retelling and upholding, enlivening of myth is really to understand how truth is handed down, right? And it's not obviously in Rockefeller history books. So is it possible, right? Like that when we forsake myth and when we describe it as this like toss off, archaic, like primitive thing, we are falling asleep, you know, at the wheel of our own chain of custody, right? Like holding that truth from generation to generation. So I'd love for you to share a little bit about like how it is that you see myth as related to the reconceptualization of plants as beings and the reconceptualization of the potential relationship, you know, integrating and healing relationship between plants and specifically master plants and humans. And how does that relate to myth for you? Like why, why even talk about that in this conversation?
1: Mm. Well, I think we can begin with the idea that myths, old wives tales, You know, are all kind of classified as untrue, right? Again, so we're getting now even deeper into this idea of how, if you want people to be disconnected from who they really are and the fullest, untamed, purposefully disobedient expression of their unique selves as part of the one being, you tell them that all the things that are truth (laughs) are false, okay? So, you know, just to bear that in mind, right? Myth right? Like we'll say, well, that's just a myth, right? Or that's just an urban legend, or that's just an old wives' tale. Old wives' tales, I'm going to start with that, are actually, you know, so I talk a lot about extra literate ways of transmitting knowledge. And I could talk about that for an entire podcast because there's so much to unpack there. But many cultures believe that oral tradition is much more important than written tradition, actually. And it doesn't make them more primitive. It makes them focus and prioritize different things. And they make a great case, to be honest, for using eidetic memory and other things in order to you know, encode it in like amulets and other things where they can know entire maps of massive geographical areas by just looking at a sacred object. And they don't even need the actual sacred object after a while. They can just... See the sacred object and unpack the map, like Aboriginal people, that is part of how they know their song lines and can go through you know massive distances and know exactly where the right caves are and the places they can hunt and so on and so forth, all encoded through oral tradition. so that's just to begin now, oftentimes what we think of as old wives' tales or as myth are actually. They seem like stories, but what they are is actually the children's level version of very complex knowledge, right? It's the story to begin the initiation to then, if you are initiated, get to learn deeper, 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 and actually know an entire volume or volumes of information around ethics and geography and hunting and ritual and so on all encoded into what we would call a myth. So myths are really volumes and volumes of transmitted information passed down generations to generations, plants and animals and land and spirits and ancestors to humans and what we tend to know of the myth of, let's say, another culture Is really just scratching the surface of the actual knowledge that's being transmitted.
0: It's such an essential point of reclamation because otherwise we're like starting from scratch all the time. And arguably, we're already so disconnected from so many myths that would otherwise have been living in our shared history that we are starting from scratch, right? Like we are waking up from the You know, narcotic amnesia. So I love that. I love that. And actually makes me aware of even just the role of like tradition and ritual and family. And when you don't embrace that, I know so much of your lived life experience is predicated on, you know, the power of ceremony, like you personally, when we don't embrace that, there is like a, a fraying of the fabric, right? Like there's a missing link and it's not going to suffice to just like hand people You know, photo books and, you know, novels and autobiographies or whatever, that there is something in the relational experience, invocation of the imagination and story, you know, in that really enlivened way that is so powerful transmission, like you said, I love that. I want to, I mean, it's just like a million directions that we could go with this conversation. And that's where, you know, there's just such a careful consideration of so many aspects, dimensions from the the scientific, I feel like putting that in quotes, I don't know why, from the scientific to, you know, the experiential in your book. And I know what a passion project this has been for you. But I want to talk about what I think is such a unique contribution that you're making to this space. Which is this conversation about dosing and how it is that we are in our ever expanding understanding of the role of water in human biology. And, you know, of course, this isn't new because this is the basis of homeopathy and, you know, so many other, you know, older approaches and methodologies. But how it is that you've invoked the principles of, energetic dosing and are now actually making that available, like that we can you know, purchase and experience these plants through you without actually sitting in ceremony and everything, well, sitting in group ceremony, let's say, and formally ingesting them at doses that would be considered quote unquote therapeutic. So I want to talk about your quantum drops. And I want you to tell the story that you told me in that voice note <laughs> yesterday, because it's just too good.
1: Okay, so I'm trying to think of of where to begin in this story, but I think what I'll start by saying is, you know, so I, I was doing microdosing coaching with people, and I noticed that people would reach out to ask questions about microdosing with, let's say, mushrooms or something like that for any number of reasons, and before they would even ever ingest, or maybe they would never ingest their lives started to change dramatically as if they had already ingested. And I saw this again and again and again and again. And what I started to recognize is, oh, the relationship has already begun when the master plant and the person or their being, right. Feel each other, right. When they feel invited into each other, the relationship already begins the medicine quote unquote already begins to unfold. Now for myself, You know, I have in some instances ingested larger doses and I have also experienced microdosing. But one of the big ways that I interact at this point in my life with master plants is by growing them. So, you know, I grow an ayahuasca vine and this is legal. You know, I don't ingest my plants. I grow an ayahuasca vine, a 10 year old vine. I grow many San Pedro cacti. I grow brugmancia. I grow tobacco and on and on. And in my tending, they are. You know, they kick my ass. I mean, I get transmissions from them all the time and they're hard on me. You know, they have expectations. And, you know, and for me also, I'll say, you know, 10 years ago, about I had an experience with San Pedro cactus, which was actually not what most people would consider a big dose because in Ecuador, it was actually their tradition is a much smaller dosing than like a lot of other cultures. And that experience, I'm still unpacking this many years later. So to me, going back to a master teacher who's given me a gift and asking for more and more gifts without really fully thanking them and offering reciprocity, right? Like, how am I showing up in the world with their gift? You know, how am I unpacking it in the world and sharing it with the world? That is part of also what guided me. But as I'm tending these plants, I got this very strong message. And this was many years ago which was why do people think they need to ingest us in order to experience our medicine, show them another way. And I was like, you know, what? Like, (laughs) I mean, I'm a neurologist. I mean, I have prescribed homeopathy flower essences. I'm all about, you know, all those vibrational medicines, but I was not necessarily looking to create something like that, but I was charged with this and I started to think about it. I knew it wasn't really homeopathy because I knew it would not use even a tiny amount of the plant matter, right? And I knew it was not exactly a flower essence, traditional flower essence. And what, you know, over time, in partnership with my plants, I began to understand it was really about creating ceremony together. So, with medicine songs, I was given in the presence of the plant with music of the plants that measures the oscillations of the plants and translates them into music at certain times of year, at certain times of month, or at certain times of the plant letting me know, you know, Brugmansia bursting into blossom, you know, filled with gorgeous yellow flowers. I know she's interested, right, in having that kind of interaction. I began to do ceremony. And what we call, you know, quantum dosing, these quantum drops is ceremony in a bottle. And the reason for that is it's more than just compounds. It's not compounds, but in fact, it's the entire ceremonial capturing of the relationship that then cultivates intimacy and depth and a relationship between a person and the plant. And that person may be sober and not want to engage with a large dose or even a microdose of a master plant. They may be medically fragile or be on medications, or they may be just sensitive, or they may be a child, right? Or they may be pregnant or whatever the reasons may be. But they still feel that call, right? Or perhaps, you know, as they're preparing or integrating, right? If we want to understand, because what is the hardest thing about anything sacred we experience? It's having to go back into ordinary reality and understand how do we integrate this extraordinary experience into the ordinary. And so this is really what quantum dosing is about. Quantum dosing can also be other things. Quantum dosing can be, you know, the cover of my book has a beautiful slice of the ayahuasca vine, and that is a quantum dose of ayahuasca when you look at that, right? It will change you just simply by looking. I quantum dose through growing master plants. I am changed every single day by that experience. So all of that to say it's a You know, it's a way of understanding the plants that actually we in this world of compounds and receptors and neurotransmitters, it's very foreign. But to indigenous people, you know, in an ayahuasca ceremony, there are these songs that are sung by the ayahuasquero called Icaros. And Icaros are considered to be vibrational transmissions from the plant that deliver the wisdom of the plant. And they are considered equal in potency by many ayahuasqueros to ingesting. I've been in ceremony where actually nobody drinks the ayahuasca brew except perhaps the ayahuasquero, but they are singing the Icaros and people will be purging. People will be crying. People will be having these experiences that are very moving and very big just in the presence of these Icaros because, you know, it's really in that paradigm, Right. And maybe it is a more true paradigm because these are the people who have been custodians and allies with these powerful masters and students of them, you know, for millennia, you know, they're like, what are compounds? What are psychedelics? What are you talking about? That's not a thing. You know, this is about the spirit and this is about the master and this is about the transmission. So understanding that we can be in relationship with that vibration and with that being and that can create this extraordinary experience in everyday life. That's, you know, what I started to play with. And we've had some really amazing now feedback on quantum drops from hundreds and hundreds of people, including, you know, doctors and therapists. And it's really exciting to see so many people interested and curious and willing to be playful with this way of experiencing potent medicine and transmissions. And so, you know, you wanted me to tell the story, this just happened a few days ago, I was at a conference, and someone, you know, had quantum drops, and they they said, you know, we talked about it for like an hour, how they work, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, Well, I don't really know how they work actually, but I just like you and I trust you. So I'm gonna try them. And I was like, okay, like, you know, so he he took them and he the next day I saw him and he said, Oh, you know, I took the quantum drops last night and this morning. He's like, I don't know if anything really happened, but you know, I feel good. I feel really calm and I feel connected and I'm connecting with lots of people. So that's good. And I'm like, great. And he's like, and you know, this morning. I took out a picture of my father who passed away many years ago and I, I made an altar and I bowed down and I prayed to him. And I was like, Oh, do you do that all the time? Is that common? He said, no, I never do that. And he said, but that's my culture. I'm Chinese. And you know, we build altars, you know, and, and we honor our ancestors. And I said, yeah, absolutely. I said, you know, I build altars all the time. I was like, do you have altars in your house? Do you have an altar in your home? And he said, no. He said, you know, my home has nothing like that at all. And I said, Oh so so this is unusual for you then and he said yeah but i i had the grandfather which is the name of you know one of the drops and i and i just i had taken the grandfather and i just wanted to make an altar with my father there and bow down and pray to him and i just felt really connected to my lineage and that's one of the things we've seen again and again and again is this connecting to lineage connecting to ancestry father wound, mother wound, you know, inner child, right. That like all these ways that we're deprogramming, right. Like releasing that programming so we can be more fully in our self-expression. I'll tell you one other very quick story, which is a doctor who was interviewing me had been taking the children, but I didn't know. And we got on an interview. He said, Maya, before we start, I just have to tell you, you know, I've been dancing every morning. And I said, oh, that's really cool. And he said, no, you don't understand. Like I get up and I turn on music and I don't drink coffee. I don't shower. I don't, I don't do anything. I just, I just start dancing. And I was like, wow, he said. And I, I couldn't figure out what was going on. And then I realized it started as soon as I started taking the children. So he's taking the children every day and he just started dancing. So just like really beautiful stories.
0: I love, I just love this. I feel such delight about all of the medicine that is available, right? To receive in all of these different ways, if we can just expand our conceptualization about what receiving consists of, and that it doesn't have to be this, you know, sort of sledgehammer cosmic two by four approach like this, it's very feminine to my mind, delivery of such potency. And I am for one, super excited to figure out which I will choose to experiment with mm-hmm. and yeah. And to report back. And I just so honor the way that you have created. I mean, I feel like this work is, is itself an altar, right? It's it's itself an altar that you've created to the plant world and you've invited us, you know, you've invited us to come sit at it. And I'm really, grateful to you and inspired by you and i know that this is exactly you know what so many people need and in a way that i just don't see anybody else holding it so thank you woman and the links will be in the show notes to your book and the quantum drops and yeah i am so excited that i have a front row seat to what it is that you're sharing with the world
1: thank you thank you and thank you for everything that you're doing to hold space for all this reclamation